0: Why don't you open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 35. And as you're turning there, I think it's important for us to get a little bit of context of what's going on at this point in time. We're coming at the tail end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's, He's ministering mostly by himself. He's doing miracles. He's proclaiming the good news of the coming kingdom. And then in chapter 9... We see some amazing things. Some things that if only one of them happened, we would be flabbergasted. We would be blown away. First, Jesus heals a leper. At the time, leprosy, there's nothing that people could do for people who had leprosy. They were sent outside of the city gates, they had no hope of being healed. And here, Jesus not only loves this person, but goes and touches him, and he's healed. And then we see that Jesus heals a paralytic man. Now, I know some people who are paralyzed. It breaks my heart knowing that they'll never walk again. And if I could see them walk, there there was nothing that I wouldn't do for them. We We have nothing that we can really do for anyone who is paralyzed. And yet here Jesus comes to the paralyzed man and with full confidence and full power heals him. And then we have Jesus casting out demons. I don't know about you, we have a few doctors in the house, but I'm fairly certain that there's no page in any medical dictionary about how to do that. So we have Jesus casting out demons. And then he calms a storm. I mean, I don't know if you've checked weather lately, but they can't get it right 25% of the time. And that's just guessing what's going to happen. Here we have Jesus looking at the storm right in the eyes and saying, All right, that's enough. Stop it. The winds and the wave and the storm listens to him. And then Jesus raises a young girl from the dead. I, w- I would wager. That most people in here would stop at nothing to see a loved one who's passed away. We, we can do nothing to bring someone back from the dead. So then, as if one wasn't enough, he actually heals two people from blindness. As if one would be a fluke, he heals two people who are blind. Imagine. Imagine. This is going on in our city, perhaps. Let's say there's a guy who's doing this. What kind of fervor and excitement would there be if this was going on? I mean, I I would stop whatever I was doing. I would go see if I could find this man. I would be so excited to meet him, so excited for him to help me. But then, in the verse immediately before our passage today, we see the Pharisees' response. These were the church leaders. These were the ones who had it all together. The Pharisees, in the midst of everyone's excitement, everyone's wonder, the Pharisees say this. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. That is a, a level of criticism that is serious. And I'm sure that went against the grain of, most, of what most everyone else was thinking. And yet, again, remember, these were those church leaders. Keep that in mind as we read this morning. Why don't you stand with me in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, coming right on the heels of the Pharisees saying that he's in league with the devil. This is how Jesus responds. Read with me. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see just how wonderful you are. Help us to understand why this was the response that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. Why this was the reaction that Jesus had as he looks upon the crowds and help us to understand your call to us as your children in this world. Father, help us to see you better this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We live in a hero culture, a superhero culture. In fact, there's this ongoing debate, which one's better, DC, comics, or Marvel? You've got Superman, Black Panther, Batman, Superman, Iron Man, all kinds of super people. And there's super ladies as well, just so that you ladies don't feel left out. There's all kinds of super people. And if you're not a little kid, and you're not a little kid at heart, you have sports heroes. Every one of us looks to some kind of hero. We long to see heroes, and I think it's because we all wish we were a hero. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a hero. A superhero, in fact. I wanted to be Superman. And uh, we were not rich enough to have me buy a super, Superman outfit, so I had to make my own. Okay? Some of you parents know where this is going. This is embarrassing that I'm going to tell you this, but I would take my, my best sweatpants, and I'd put those on, and then I'd take my best Superman underwear and put them over top, And then I'd find my whitest T-shirt, and I'd tuck a towel into the collar of the back of my my collar, and I would run around vanquishing villains, beating the bad guys, getting the monsters. There's nothing that I couldn't do as a second grader until it was time for bed. Because that's when it got dark out, and that's when the Actual bad guys hid underneath my bed and in the closet. And downstairs, my parents could hear me cry out as I climbed into bed. Daddy, could you tuck me in and maybe also check for the bad guys under the bed and in the closet? You see, this is us. Now, I'm not saying you're running around with underwear over your pants, but what I am saying is that we're running around thinking that we're superheroes, thinking that we have this elevated sense of self, but then when the darkness comes, we realize that we're not heroes. No, we're close. We actually need a hero. We need someone who will come to our aid. So this morning, let's spend some time looking at our hero. His name is Jesus. And so for those of you who like to take notes, follow along with me. We've got three points this morning. Jesus is determined. Jesus is our deliverer. And Jesus is also dependent. So first, Jesus is determined. We, we, we've, also, we've already pointed out that in the midst of what the Pharisees said, Jesus doesn't even turn his head. He doesn't doesn't even take notice of their comment because he has this goal in mind and he's dead set determined on accomplishing it. They said he's in league with, with the devils, with the demons. He doesn't even look. He keeps on going. What he's focused on is of utmost importance to him. But how and why is he able to stay so focused? I think the, the answer to that is in this concept that he brings up of the harvest. Now, I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I worked on a farm. And all my friends, most of them, worked on farms. I mean, the whole year was designed around what needs to be done on a farm. And in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we were well aware of that. And I'll tell you one thing that never happened on a farm. A lot of things happen on a farm, but this one thing never happened on a farm. A farmer, let's say he wakes up, goes outside, and he says, whoa, there's a harvest. Who knew? That never happened. So when Jesus says there's a great harvest, he is is telling us that a lot of work has been done to get us to this point. In another passage, Jesus shares, let's say, in in Luke 24, verse 27, he says and he explains to all of his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And so the Scriptures, obviously, at that time, were the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't born yet. And yet here he is telling his disciples all the things that all the Old Testament said about him. But not only that, we read in Jude verse 5 that Jesus was he who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Now I read the story, I'm sure many of you have, but I don't remember Jesus being in that story. But here we have in, in Jude being explained to us that Jesus was It wasn't only about Jesus. Jesus was there. Jesus was leading in a way that we can't in this world understand. And so how was Jesus there? What what were all the things that Jesus was a part of in doing? In our church, we believe in covenant theology, this overarching story from beginning to end, how Jesus was a part of not only page one, page two, page three, until the last page, whatever page that is. He's a part of it all. We see in Adam and Eve, as they fell, as they fell short, God gave them the promised curses that were were to come to them. But he also, within the curse, he gave them a promise that there would be a seed that would come from them that would crush the head of the serpent. So we know now that he was referring to Jesus already. So Jesus was there. Then we see God making a covenant with Noah. And and through the story, we see that even when God saves one small family and erases the whole world, that if there's still humanity in the world, there's sin. There's sin there. They they cannot do it themselves. The moment that they land the boat, they fall. They fall short. It shows us that no matter what we do, we need a savior. And so then in the covenant with Abraham, we see God making a promise that that from Abraham would come this, this nation that was so large, there would be so numerous that there'd be more of them than the sands of the seashore, the stars of the sky. And that through them, through their seed, there would be a blessing that would come to the nations. We now know that was, that was all about Jesus. Jesus was there. And we see Moses, this covenant with Moses, promised that there would be a promised land. See, he took, he used Moses to, to save his people out of slavery and bring them into the promised land. See, there's, in almost every story, what we're seeing in the Old Testament is a physical representation of a spiritual reality saving a people out of slavery, that they would be brought into this promised land. As, as now we, what we're seeing is that God is delivering us from slavery to sin and death and going to be bringing us into this promised land. Jesus was there. And Jesus was there when God made a promise with King David that someone, that one of his seed, that from him there would always be someone who would sit on the throne forever. See, Jesus was there. And so when we think about Jesus in this small context of being criticized by the Pharisees, and then we take a a larger scope of, wow, he's been working for thousands of years. No wonder he didn't even take a look when the Pharisees criticized him. It was as if he was in the largest game of his largest football game of his life going towards the end zone and in the nosebleed section where the pharisees saying you stink jesus he didn't even hear them he knew what he was doing he was going towards the end zone and nothing could stop him no wonder he didn't even take heed to what they said but in our context from our perspective, I think oftentimes we wonder, did God, God fall asleep at the, at the wheel? Does he really know what he's doing? It seems like he's making stuff up as he goes. I mean, if he really knew my pain and my struggle and my hurt, he would have designed things differently. My encouragement to you is, let's take a step back. Let's take a step back and look at the larger story And the promise that your story fits within that story and God is working all things out for your good. Now, that's not a contrite, just easy statement to say. Because I know it's not an easy statement to hear. But your story that God is writing in your life is a part of this grander narrative. And Jesus is here with us now. He's here with you now. So not only is Jesus determined, but Jesus is also our deliverer. See, why was he so determined? He was so determined because the Father's eyes have been set on you from the very beginning. He sees you. He's been working all things out to bring you home. His longing has been you. He wants for you to see him and know that he sees you. See, it's interesting to see that in the Old Testament, the the harvest, this idea of a harvest was almost always put with negative connotations as that that the harvest would be God's judgment on the wicked. But that's not what we see here. We see a very different sense where Jesus actually looks at the world around him and with a broken heart, he sees them and he says that they are wheat that he longs to bring into the Father's storehouse. The Pharisees, on the other hand, looked at the people as chaff, things to be burned up, the wicked, those who will one day be judged. See, the Pharisees, what they were doing was looking at God's law and saying, I can do this on my own. They didn't, they didn't learn the, the superhero illustration I showed you at the beginning. They didn't realize that they needed a hero. They said, I could do it. And they had to prove it to themselves that they could do it. So like many of us, I would say all of us, we oftentimes look at each other and compare each other with how well we're doing. Maybe we point fingers and judge. Maybe we say, I'm better than this guy, so I got to be okay. That was the Pharisees' way of living. And Jesus was a threat to that way of living because Jesus offered free salvation, grace, and love that was free. Maybe to put it better, I'll tell you a little illustration, a little story about a a time I went skiing recently. I I got into skiing this last year. Are there many skiers in the room? A a few of you, yes, we're in Colorado, I remember now. So I got back into skiing and I grew up skiing, and I I love to ski. So I and I also love to bring friends with me when I go on adventures. And so I would bring all of my friends to go skiing with me. they didn't know how to ski most of the time. And, and my way of teaching is by throwing people into the deep end without a life preserver or anything like that. And just throw them into the deep end and at the end of the day, they'll probably be proficient enough to ski well. So I had some friends who had gone through the, the first Drew Ski Instruction Day and then we were going to go the second day to Breckenridge. It was my birthday. I was super excited. We were going to go and have a great day. It was a powder day. It's the best day of the year, frankly. A powder day on, at Breckenridge. We, um, me and my friends, we got to the mountain. We got onto the ski lift. We're going up. And then we get off. And we're not high enough yet. So we go to the T-bar, which I think there's a sign that says, uh, make sure you know what you're doing before you get on this. These guys have never done this. But who cares? Let's go. We're doing it. So we get up the T-bar, we're still not high enough. So we go over to the other chairlift and we go to the tippy-tippy-tap where there's only one way down. And I knew I could do it. And I didn't care if the other people could do it, but it was going to be fun. And then we go through, we, we have to go through this gate that says, don't go through here unless you really are good. And so they're all trying to follow me. And I'm saying, this way, guys, it's fun. And so we go and we're, we're at the edge of the cliff, straight down, and I'm thinking, this is gonna be great. And so it's the best 20 seconds of my life. Okay, I, I get down the mountain, it's, it's awesome. And there's like six feet of snow. So I get to the bottom and I turn around and I make this, 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 uh, this snow seat. And I sit down and I watch as my buddies come down the mountain, head over foot. And, and the good thing was when they stopped every 20 feet. It was, it was like the good thing because they couldn't gain speed if they kept flipping over and over and over again. And I sat and I watched, I pointed, I laughed. I had, I had the time of my life. But then they got down to where I was. And that, that wasn't so fun. Because I knew that they were not too happy with me. But, you know, like, doesn't it feel good to be at the bottom of the mountain pointing at everybody else who can't figure it out? Like, as Christians, so often that's kind of the way we are, isn't it? I mean, be real with me. We got this thing figured out better than other people, and it's easy for us to point and judge and say, I'm better than you, and it feels good deep down inside. And Jesus here is saying that is not the gospel. Thankfully, Jesus is not that way with us. He does not get to the top of the mountain, swoosh down, sit down, and point and laugh at us as we try to figure things out. I wish I could say he doesn't even take us to the top of peak seven and eight and then then have us go down with him. He actually does for some of us. He takes us to the very tippy top. But he doesn't leave us. And at those times where we feel like we're alone, we, we do know that he's actually holding us, if not only holding our hand, he's holding us completely the entire way. See, that we have this Savior that isn't merely determined. He's our deliverer. He has compassion for us. The word here for compassion has no, no good English term. It could mean compassion or pity or sympathy or some other fellow feeling, but it's not merely a feeling that he describes here. He actually also says it is a feeling that also moves us towards filling the need of another. See, his heart goes out to us. He doesn't merely see us and long for us to experience differently. He moves in such a way where he makes it so that we experience something differently. He has compassion for us. And so far, up until this passage, what we see is Jesus doing it all on his his own, basically. It's an understatement for Jesus to say that the workers are few, because he's the only one. He's the only one doing it. He actually calls us to the same kind of love. And this love is a beautiful thing. I'm reminded of a story of this special ed child whose name was Mikey. Mikey was in fifth grade or something like that. And he was smart enough to be in the normal class with everyone else. But he was the butt of jokes. You'd think that the other kids would feel for him and and take care of him. But that wasn't what happened. Oftentimes, Mikey would come home crying and upset because his, his classmates were picking on him. And it's one day his mom is looking out the window and he sees all of his, his classmates walking along the sidewalk and then half a block back, he, she sees Mikey all by himself. A few moments later, Mikey runs through the door with this great joy and exclamation saying, hey, mom, guess What? And mom responds with surprise and says, what, what happened, Mikey, what happened? And he says, mom, you wouldn't believe it. The teacher said that Valentine's Day is in two weeks and we get to make Valentine's Day cards for all of our classmates. And the mom's heart sank at that moment because she, she knew what was probably going to be the inevitable, inevitable thing. That Mikey would spend all this time creating these masterpieces for his classmates and he'd come home empty handed and heartbroken so for the next two weeks though he's creating these these works of art he's laboring over these Valentine's Day cards to express his care and love for his classmates and the day finally comes and he's he's getting ready, he's got his Valentine's Day cards in a pile and Nervous and worried, he he looks at his mom and says, Mom, I, I hope I didn't forget anyone. And with that, he runs out the window, out the door. Not out the window, that'd be weird. But he runs out the door. And he goes to class and during the day, mom is making his favorite cookies for him so that when he comes home crying, he would have at least something to console him with. Three o'clock rolls around and Mom looks out the window and she sees all the classmates walking along the sidewalk. In a half block back, she sees Mikey all by himself. A few moments later, after mom put the cookies on the table, Mikey bursts into the door and says, Guess what, mom? And she looks at Mikey and says, What? What happened? Mikey looks up at his mom and says, I didn't forget one person. See, we love this kind of selfless love. It resonates with us because that's what we long to see in in, in other people. And we actually really long to see in ourselves. We want to be that kind of people that loves others unconditionally, even those who pick on us, even those who we would sooner call our enemies. Jesus here is saying, this is the kind of love that you are called to engage in a selfless love that, doesn't, that does not ask for a moment, what am I getting in return? Now, how does this happen? I think what's amazing here as we look at our third point, that Jesus is dependent, that we see that at this point, we're expecting Jesus to give a, a rousing speech of go and conquer. You see all the need. Go do it. But what we need to realize is that when Jesus says, as he looks at the crowds and sees that, his, that the flock of sheep are harassed and helpless, it's not as if he's standing next to us and saying, hey, look, those people over there are harassed and helpless. You should go help them. He's, he's actually looking at us in the crowd and saying, you are harassed and helpless. And so pray that God would send workers into the field. And what happens when we pray? Why would he tell us to pray rather than first to go? Because when we spend time with our Father in heaven, what happens deep within our hearts is that we start to beat for the same things that God's heart beats for. You know, I think if he said, go first, what he, w- he knew what he would be doing would be saying, all you Pharisees, go do it. He doesn't want to send a whole bunch of Pharisees out into the world to do it. What he wants is people who are brokenhearted and recognize their need of Jesus and whose hearts are being transformed by God's goodness so that as that happens, we know we must go. And so we're to pray. What else happens when we pray? We recognize that God and God alone is to receive credit. For him bringing souls into heaven. Never should we ever say, I, I had this great speech. I really had a great argument. This, that, or the other thing. I did a great job of bringing this guy into heaven. I saved him. No. As we read in Psalm 127, unless the, labor, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so we're to recognize where does our power come from? Where does this transformation occur? It occurs as we spend time with our Father in heaven. And again, as our hearts are transformed and as we beat after him, we're sent with the heart of Jesus. We also see in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7, that Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We're to recognize who is to be given the credit. But again, as we spend time with him, as we're in prayers, we long to see God come and fix all the brokenness that we experience. We're transformed. And fathers, we all want our kids to learn from us. We all want our kids to grow. And so I I recently read a a letter from a dad to his son. I want to read it for you. He titles it, Choosing Susie. Dear Matthew, when I was in sixth grade, I was an all-American. I was smart, athletic, witty, handsome, especially with my Vaseline hair wave sweeping back from my forehead, and I was incredibly nice. Things went downhill later, but for this one year, I had everything. Unfortunately, I also had Miss Owens for an assistant teacher. She helped Mr. Jenkins, our teacher, and she also went to my church. She knew that even though I was smart and incredibly nice, there was a thing or two I could still work on. One of the things you were expected to do in grade school was to learn how to dance. My parents had some reservations about it, but since this was square dancing, it was okay with them. Every time we went to work on our dancing, we did this terrible, awful thing. I hope this kind of thing isn't happening anymore. But the boys would all line up at the door of our classroom, and then one at a time, each boy would pick a girl to be his partner. The girls all sat at their desks and as they were chosen, they left their desks and joined the kid who honored them with their favor. Believe me, the boys didn't like this. Think about waiting to get picked. Think about being the girls though. Think about seeing who was going to get picked before you. Think about worrying that you'd get picked by someone you couldn't stand. Think about worrying that you weren't even going to get picked at all. And think about it if If you were Susie. Susie was a girl who sat up near the front on the right hand side. She wasn't pretty, she wasn't smart, she wasn't witty. Yes, she was nice, but that wasn't enough in those days. And she certainly wasn't athletic. In fact, she, she had polio or something when she was small, and one of her arms was drawn up and she had a bad leg, and to finish it off, she was she was a little larger. Here's where Miss Owens comes in. Miss Owens took me aside one day and said, Dan, next time we have dancing, I want you to choose Susie. She might as well have told me to fly to Mars. It was an idea that was so new and inconceivable, I could hardly believe it. You mean pick somebody other than the best, the prettiest, the most popular? And then Miss Owens did a rotten thing. She told me it was what a Christian would do. I knew immediately I was doomed. I was doomed because I knew she was right. It was exactly the kind of thing Jesus would have done. In fact, I was surprised that I had never seen a Sunday school flannel board that had ever said, Jesus choosing the lame girl for the yeshiva dance. It was bound to be somewhere in the Bible, I'm sure. Choosing Susie would go against all the coolness I'd accumulated. It wasn't smart, it wasn't witty. Maybe it was nice, but I didn't care about that anymore. The day came when we had to square dance and I prayed secretly that God would work it out so that I would be last. Then I could pick Susie because she'd be the only one left. No one would know. I would have honored Miss Owen's request and I would, have gone, I would have done the Christian thing to do and I would have gotten away with it. You can guess where I was instead For whatever reason, I was first in line. The faces of all the girls turned towards me, smiling and batting their eyes. I looked at Susie, and I saw that she was only half turned towards me, more turned towards the back of the room, her face staring down at her desk. Mr. Jenkins said, Okay, Dan, choose your partner. And I remember feeling very far away. And I heard my voice say, I choose Susie. Never has virtue been rewarded so fast. I can still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head and on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment all at once, was the most genuine look of delight. And even pride that I'd ever seen before or since, it was so pure that I had to look away because I knew I didn't deserve it. Susie came up and took my arm, just like we'd been instructed, and she walked beside me, bad leg and all, just like a princess. Susie's my age now. I never saw her after that, day, after that year. I don't know what her life's been like or what she's doing, but I'd like to think she has a fond memory of at least one day in sixth grade. I know I do. This was a letter from a father to his son and here what we're seeing is in this passage is a letter from our father to his children saying it's, it's time to choose Susie. It's time to look out at the world and see the brokenness and hurt and stop pointing fingers and saying, I got this better than you if you would just make the right choice Without the movement of the Holy Spirit, we know they cannot make a choice for the better. And so, He's calling us to live our lives in such a way where we are moved to blessing those who we would sooner call our enemies. He's calling us to love in an impossible way. And how do we do that? It starts with prayer. We cannot do this on our own. But as we pray and as our hearts are transformed, He will send us. He will send us into the impossible, but he will go with us. And he's determined to make that happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And thank you that you saw us and your heart went out to us and you were moved to action because of your great love for us. Father, I pray that you would do the same in us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.